David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 might be, besides John 3.16, the most well-known passage in the Bible. People who have never opened a Bible in their entire lives have probably at least heard part of Psalm 23. Because in every movie, in every TV show, when there's a funeral, two traits. It's a Catholic funeral, because there's a priest, because they've got to show this is a religious thing, so he's got the collar, and they're reading Psalm 23. I don't know if the Pope struck a deal with the major studios, it's a PR thing, but every funeral, there's a priest, and he's always reading some part of Psalm 23. So if you've never set foot in church, you've never owned a Bible, you have most likely heard, at least, the Lord is my shepherd. Today, we're going to unpack it, because it is full of valuable helpful information for all of us because we need a shepherd. We need to understand uh, what this passage is really talking about. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Um, David wrote this song before he was king. Uh, it, chronologically, it falls in with about uh, 1 Samuel 18 or 19. A little bit of background. David was uh, from a family where his father owned some sheep he was the youngest son, and his job was to keep the sheep. Now, there was a king over Israel named Saul, who was this mighty man, a mighty warrior, but he was not a godly man, and so God sent the prophet Samuel to find a new king. He said, I've chosen one, and you're going to anoint him as king. And so Samuel ends up at the house of Jesse, David's father, and Jesse parades his sons out, and there's the firstborn. This guy's tall, and he's muscular, and he's good-looking, and the prophet Samuel says, oh, surely this is the guy. And the Lord says, no. And bring the next son. No. Next one. No. And then Samuel says, it, are there any other sons? And he says, oh, I mean, yeah, there's one more. Okay, he keeps the sheep. Samuel says, well, bring him here. In walks young David, and the Lord says, that's the one. That's the one. David uh, was a poet. He was a musician. And uh, as Saul began his, his downslide into insanity, he was having these fits of rage where this evil spirit would come over him, and he would just get violent and go berserk. And so they found someone and say, well, we got this kid who is a skilled musician. And so they brought David in, and his job was when Saul would start throwing a tantrum and getting all crazy and violent, David would play and would calm him down. So here's David, the future king, working for the present king, who's not a good guy, playing music to soothe him and calm him down. Now, as Saul gets to know David better, um, Saul begins to like David less and less, specifically the day when David became famous. There was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, and it had gone on and on and on, and so finally they decided, why don't we just bring out a champion from each army, and they'll fight each other to the death. And whoever wins, 
If your champion wins, we become your slaves. And if our champion wins, you become our slaves. And so everyone's afraid because Goliath was nine feet, six inches tall. He had bronze armor that weighed about 125 pounds. And so obviously no one was super excited to go fight Goliath. David was sent by his dad to go to the battle lines to check on his brothers and bring them some food. And he gets there and he's finding out what's going on. They explain this whole thing. And David says, well, I'll fight him. And no one else was willing to step up. So Saul actually allowed it. David tried to put on Saul's armor. He was so small, he couldn't even do it. And you know the story. David gathers slings, uh, his sling and some stones, hits Goliath right in the forehead, cracks his skull, kills him, cuts his head off with his own sword. Big day. Looks good on a resume. Now moving forward, Saul, you'd think, would be happy about that. Actually, it made Saul angry because as Saul returns to the city, he hears the women singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh, the psycho king is unhappy. And so he formulates a plan. I want to kill David. So David is in the king's court, playing the harp, trying to calm him down. And Saul, the Bible says, takes his spear in the attempt to pin David to the wall. David escapes out of Saul's hand. Saul's another idea. I'll give him my daughter. Maybe she, as his wife, can be a snare to him. The Bible tells us that Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And so she was not a snare to him. So then Saul says, okay, I'm going to send David into more battles. Surely the enemy will take care of him. What happened instead was God prospered David. He was victorious in battle, became a great and successful leader in battle, and the people loved him more and more and more and more. So Saul says, okay, no more kid gloves. Let's do this. Saul tells his servants and his son Jonathan, kill David. Doesn't have to look like an accident. Don't have to do it in battle. Kill him. Something had happened earlier in David's life that the Lord orchestrated because the Bible tells us that Jonathan, Saul's son, and David, when they met, their hearts were knit together and they loved each other like their own souls. And so uh, Jonathan warns David, my dad's wanting to kill you. You have to flee. Michael, David's wife, Saul's daughter, helps him escape. And now what you have is David writing the Lord... <laughs> is my shepherd. Let's set the context because we, we need to understand this is not a guy in the peak of life. This is a guy in his darkest hour writing Psalm 23. There's five things I want to encourage you in this morning if you're taking notes. If not, just listen. Um, this has been helpful for me prepping this and, re- and relying on God for this. I hope it's helpful for you from Psalm 23. My hope is that we'll all have a better understanding of it today and we put it to use, and we receive comfort understanding who God is more and more and more. Number one, from Psalm 23, we need to recognize the shepherd. It starts off with, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, when you see the word Lord in the English Bible, and it's all caps, that's for a reason. Lord in all caps is referring to the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, Hebrew word Yahweh, Jehovah, Or, what God referred to himself, to Moses, is I am, the ever-present one, the self-sufficient one, the God who needs nothing, the God who needs no one, the Lord, in all caps. And so David is telling us from the very first verse, I am, is my shepherd. 
That's the foundation. Now, the Bible refers to us as sheep many times. And it's not meant to be an insult. God calls us sheep because it's just a fact. We are always following something or someone. And as sheep, we need a shepherd, but not just any shepherd. We need who David called upon. The Lord is my shepherd. So that's the foundation for this. And we can read this whole passage, and, and if you read it on your own, start every verse with, because the Lord is my shepherd. That's why all these promises can be true. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have what I need. We get more elaboration on what this means hundreds of years later when the descendant of David, the promised Messiah, Jesus, stands up and teaches in John 10, verses 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. You want to understand Psalm 23? You have to look at the life of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. We cannot get that assurance anywhere else. There are, in this modern era, innumerable people and things calling out for us to follow them. But we don't reap the benefits of having Jesus, the good shepherd, when we're following false shepherds. So be encouraged this morning. We don't have to settle for imposters or wannabe shepherds because they cannot meet our needs like the Lord. And as our good shepherd, God desires to provide for us. As the almighty, sovereign, creator, and sustainer God, he has the resources to actually provide for us. So we've got to recognize Jesus is our true shepherd and then follow him because he is I am. He is Yahweh. And that one true God above all gods is worthy of our surrender. Recognize the shepherd, my friends, and surrender to his authority his power and to his reign over your life the Lord is my shepherd David continues because the Lord is my shepherd he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul so number two find rest in the shepherd Great quote. I have two quotes today from uh, Alexander McLaren. He was, he was alive primarily in the 1800s, died I think in 1910. Excellent writer, excellent commentary on Psalm 23. He said, first, God leads his sheep into rest. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. It is the hot noontide, and the desert lies baking in an awful glare. And every stone on the hills of Judea burns the foot that touches it. But in that panting, breathless hour, here is a little green glen with a quiet brooklet and moist, lush herbage all along its course and great stones that fling a black shadow over the dewy grass at their base. And there would the shepherd lead his flock while the sunbeams like swords 
are piercing everything beyond that hidden covert. Sweet silence broods there. The sheep feed and drink and couch in cool lairs till he calls them forth again. So God leads his children. God wants us to rest. One day Jesus was with his disciples. They were walking through a grain field. Because they were hungry, they were plucking some grain. And the Pharisees didn't like this because on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to harvest. And so they saw him just plucking a little bit of grain and eating it as harvesting. And of course, they were always looking for fault in Jesus. So they, they try to call him out on it. But then he clarifies what the Sabbath is really about in Mark 2, 27 and 28. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Maybe in your hectic life you can feel like at times if you're not doing something, you know, you're doing something wrong. There's times I tell my wife, she wants me to relax on a Saturday, and I say, it just feels weird. And she says, but you're supposed to rest. And she's right. And sometimes I do. Um... And I always feel better afterward. We're in a busy world, but we need rest. And we are commanded to rest by God because whether we realize it or not, we need it. God is our creator, and he designed us to both work and rest for our benefit. Our bodies, our minds, and our souls need it because w with this rest, we can actually refocus on what's important. In Psalm chapter 46, this is a context of turmoil and battle and violence and uncertainty. And David writes, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still could also be translated, stop fighting. And I think we need that. Toiling, 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 toiling. And God says, Stop. Be still. Why? Because you've got to know I'm God. I'm your shepherd. I'll take care of you. Quiet time with the Lord is important because God does not always speak with a thunderous shout. Sometimes it's a whisper. Elijah figured that out <coughs> in 1 Kings 19 when there was earthquake and wind. He didn't hear God's voice in that, but when things were quiet, he heard what the Bible calls the still small voice of God. And if we're surrounded by noise, we're not going to hear it. This is one of the many benefits of fasting. If you've never fasted as a Christian, I highly recommend it. Yes, from food, but we can also fast from anything that calls out to us. Anything that ga gathers our attention distracts us. It can be from screens. It can be from delicacies, hobbies, from any of those things. Uh, you might know what to fast from if you're unsure. Your spouse has probably already told you. Maybe in subtle ways like, oh, you're going you're gonna to go do that hobby again? Hint, hint, hint. Oh, you're, you're going to uh, watch that show again? Or you're going to watch more TV? Okay. Oh, oh, you're going to go work out again? Oh, you're going to have another bowl of ice cream? We've got to quit with the specific references because sometimes it hits home. Now I have a complex. Listen, why? Because these things are calling out to us. 
These things are calling out, saying, find comfort in me, find rest in me, but they cannot satisfy. <coughs> so if we fast from them, we are forced to find our rest in our good shepherds, sitting still, hearing the voice of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this is Solomon. He writes in Ecclesiastes 3, what, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive, and this is Solomon, known as maybe the wisest man that ever lived. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Rest is a gift. The Bible tells us in, John, in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How foolish, my friends, would we be to refuse any gift that God offers. Rest is one of those gifts. And David said, he restores my soul. Isaiah chapter 40. You want to know the character of God, how he sees us and what he does for us? Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord, see it's in all caps, same word, the I am is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. We do, he does not. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The restoration of our souls that God offers is not a quick nap or a five-hour energy that's just enough to get you through the day. What God offers is a renewal of our hearts and minds. He comforts us when we are hurting. He guides us when we wander. He makes our sinful hearts clean and new and able to love him and able to love like him. I want to encourage you, find rest in our good shepherd. Because the Lord is my shepherd, it says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here's Alexander McLaren again. The soul, thus restored, is then led on another stage. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is to say, God guides us into work. The quiet mercies of the preceding verse are not in themselves the end of our shepherd's guidance. They are means to an end, and that is work. Life is not a fold for the sheep to lie down in, but a road for them to walk on. All our blessings of every sort are indeed given us for our delight. They will never fit us for the duties for which they are intended to prepare us unless they first be thoroughly enjoyed. The highest good they yield is only reached through the lower one. But then, when joy fills the heart 
and life is bounding in the veins, we have to learn that these are granted not for pleasure only, but for pleasure in order to power. Now keep in mind, this is written more than 100 years ago, so he makes a very specific historical reference to technology that we don't use that much anymore. Thank you, sir. The steam engine. He says, we get them, talking about these pleasures, these blessings, this rest, we get them not to let them pass away like waste steam puffed into empty air, but that we may use them to drive the wheels of life. The waters of happiness are not for a luxurious bath where a man may lie till, like flax steep too long, the very fiber be rotted out of him. A quick plunge will brace him, and he will come out refreshed for work. Rest is fit for work. Work is to sweeten rest. All this is emphatically true of the spiritual life. It's seasons of communion. It's hours on the mount are to prepare for the sore, sad work on the plain. And he is not the wisest disciple who tries to make the Mount of Transfiguration the abiding place for himself and his Lord. If we're going to understand the importance of rest, we have to understand what godly work is. Do you know that work is pre-fall, meaning before Adam and Eve sinned, work was a thing. In Genesis 2.15, God created man, and it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Before sin, humans were created to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, and to work. And it's a holy and beautiful thing. Both rest and work are, command, are commanded. The fourth commandment, typically when we talk about it, it's just quickly thrown out as honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's true, but the fourth commandment is actually quite a bit longer than that because God tells us why we Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 God told, tells us, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? Here's why. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Work. Work is a good thing. In 2 Thessalonians, in the New Testament, Paul's, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica and says, We command you, brothers, in the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the, the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Laziness and rest are not the same thing. Laziness is a perversion of a good thing. Rest. Laziness is anti-God and contagious, and that's why God tells you, don't hang out with a lazy Christian. It's like a virus. God is not lazy. God is at work. God has always been at work, and we are to be imitators of God, and one way we do that is by holy, righteous work for his glory and to help others. And when we work for God's glory, it makes our rest all the more sweet. Work, my friends, we work for the good shepherd. Number four, from this passage, David found refuge in the good shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 4, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hard times will come. A lot of you right now are in them at this very moment. That is life in a broken, sin-sick world. And we suffer because of our own sin. And we suffer because of the sins of others. It's a real thing. It's part of this life. But we have a refuge in our good shepherd. Remember the context of this passage. Don't picture David the king with a gold crown on his head, sitting on a balcony of the palace, overlooking his kingdom, saying, Isn't God good? No. You have David on the run, in hiding. The future king, but not the king. The not yet, maybe someday, but God said it, but I don't see it, I don't feel it. <clears throat> Everything is going wrong in my life. My life is in jeopardy. I'm on the run. My father-in-law wants me dead. I'm separated from my family. There are trained warriors in pursuit of me, wanting to kill me. I don't feel like God has chosen me for anything but suffering. Where do I go? Who can I trust? It's in that situation he said, oh, I know the Lord. I'm going to walk through a valley, shadow of death. But when I'm there, how, how can I fear no evil? How is that possible? Because the Lord is my shepherd. My friend, it is natural. It is logical. It is good to long for refuge. God has put that in us. When we suffer, we should long for refuge. But be warned, taking refuge in anything other than our good shepherd is idolatry. It's escapism. We can take work, which is a good thing, and make it an idol. Because I feel better when I accomplish. I feel better when I win. I feel better when I'm successful, when I get something done. And then work becomes the refuge. We can make rest an idol. You know, work hard, play hard. I'm entitled to not do anything because I work so hard and I hate my job and I'm so miserable this, this week. So if I could just get to the weekend, if I, I just put my hope in my day off, everything will be fine. No, our refuge is in the good shepherd. Wanderlust. When's my next trip? I don't know where I'm going. All I know is wherever I am, I'm not happy there. I've got to be somewhere else. 
I've got to be looking for some new place, some new experience, some new meal, some travel, something I've never seen before. I need more, 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 more. I need that escape. What happens is we can take the good things that God gives us and love them more than we love him. We're warned to not love the gift more than the giver. The rod and the staff mentioned in verse 4 are extremely important for us to really understand the means by which our shepherd cares for us. Remember, David grew up working as a shepherd. And shepherds in his time carried a rod, which was kind of a club, a shorter stick, and a staff, which was longer, each with a specific purpose. David elaborates on that, possibly months, maybe a couple years before he wrote Psalm 23, as he's making his case to King Saul. I want to fight this giant. He's blaspheming the name of our God. He's blaspheming the, the, the name of God's people. Someone has to do something. You guys are too afraid. I want to fight this guy because God's name is worth more than that. And so he's making his case to the king of why he's got some battle experience as a kid. Saul said to David in 1 Samuel 17, You are not able to stand against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David had already had experience, and so he understood a shepherd has a rod and a staff for the good of the sheep. The rod was to fight off the enemy, but the staff had a different function. As sheep are prone to wander, the shepherd would use his staff to guide them along. Being a longer stick with a curve at the end, it could be used to, to prod a sheep, to even kind of hook them, to pull them more into the fold. It's always a shepherd bringing the sheep back to himself. You're wandering, I'm bringing you back to me because you're safe here. You're safe with me. But when you get off the trail, you're going to get into things that you're not ready for. There are lions and bears. There's enemies. There's threats out there. So I'm going to pull you in closer. Our good shepherd Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 15. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, what's he do? Does he deride it? Does he shame it? Does he punish it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. David found refuge in knowing in his darkest time he was not lost because he was comforted by the rod and the staff of his shepherd. Listen to, the, listen to the tenderness in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. This is talking about that all-powerful, almighty I am. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. My friends, the Lord is our shepherd. 
He is mightier than all. He is stronger than our problems. He is stronger than our enemy, and he stands with a weapon in his hand. The rod was not used on the sheep, but for the sheep. And so on behalf of the sheep he loves, God is ready to strike down the enemy. And his staff, no matter how far you wander, his staff is always ready to guide us in the right path. He leads us to green pastures, nourishing still waters for our good and his glory. And my friends, that is comforting because there's nothing and there's no one else in which we can find refuge that only God can give. Take refuge in the good shepherd. Number five, take confidence in the shepherd because the Lord is our shepherd. David said, imagine this is a guy in a cave I have to stay hidden because if I poke my head out, there's someone ready to kill me. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're not worried about the enemy when we're seated in the presence of of the king. When we're banqueting with the master, we're not worried about those who are not invited to the feast. So we have to picture not the uh, painting of the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples on a, a long straight table, all facing the same direction. That's not how this works. That's not how it's ever worked. Gather all your friends and then you're eating and then. No. Whenever a, a a wealthy person or royalty would put on a feast, everything is pointed towards them. And David said, this shepherd has prepared a table for me. I've been invited to a feast in the presence of my enemies. And in that feast, there's luxury. So he anoints my head with oil. A lot of these things we just don't get because I'm standing right here in the air conditioning. And so the idea of my head being anointed with oil, I, I just don't understand. Imagine you don't get to shower very often. You live in the desert. It's 2,000 years ago, or back here maybe 3,000 years ago, 2,700 years ago, I believe, when David's writing this. Everything's dusty. In the winter, you're cold all the time. And in the summer, you're hot all the time. And there's no air conditioning, and there's no lotion, and there's no sunblock. The idea of being lavished in luxury where the king anoints my head with oil, nourishes my skin, it's expensive, and it's fragrant, and you can only get it in the king's palace. What a delight. And that's what David is enjoying. In the midst of hiding in a cave, I'm in the presence of the king. It's like he's pouring his oil over my head. He says, my cup overflows. The king can provide abundant provision. We find confidence in our shepherd because he has the resources to provide. You can step out in faith and serve God without knowing how it's going to work out because you know that God is already there. You can follow God wherever he leads you. He's already there. He has the resources. He will provide. That's what he does. He's our shepherd. And David understood that. My cup is running over, overflowing. In Psalm 31, 19. He wrote, oh, how abundant is your goodness 
which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. How is it possible in the midst of suffering, in great loss, in grief, in fear, sadness, in darkness, to say that you feel peace? How is it possible to have joy? Well, there's something supernatural about it. When you're sitting at a table with the I am, when he's laid out a feast for us, that's how we can have peace and joy. No matter what we're going through, we can luxuriate in his presence. We can feast at his table with an overflowing cup, our heads soothed with his anointing oil. In the presence of our king, we can rest confidently. His protection, his provision, his comfort. And David ends it with verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No matter what, I, no matter what I'm going through, the goodness and mercy of our God rests on me, and I have the promise that this is not all there is, because I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. So good. In all my life, and this week, over and over again, I've seen your provision and your protection, your gentle guiding, you being faithful, gentle, and lowly with me in my sin. You guide me with your staff, and I wander, and you bring me back. And I wander again, and you bring me back. You pull me out of the ditch, and you restore me into your fold. Father, help us to recognize that you are the one true shepherd. You are the one source of peace and hope and refuge and rest. You are the one who is worthy to work for. Help us to ignore the calls of the false shepherds and follow you as our one true shepherd. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.